This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast with Alex Milsom and Shivani Dave. Break time's over, class. Find your desks quickly, please. And if any of you need the toilet, you know what I'm going to say. You should have gone during the break. That's Alex Milsom, or should I say Mr. Milsom, and I'm Shivani Dave, <laughs> and we are your teachers this week for the Virgin Radio Pridecast. This is the show where we take a look back through the archives of our fabulous pop-up radio station, Virgin Radio Pride. And if you missed last week's episode, you might be just nervously slightly confused at that introduction. So let me explain. This week we are going to be continuing our exploration into the world of LGBTQ plus education. Did you learn anything last week that you were able to uh, utilise this week, Alex? I got really worried there. I thought you were asking about, like, did I actually learn anything at all during the week? I mean, oh, yeah, to be that fair, the well. answer to both questions, probably no. I'm half asleep most of the time. Um, <laughs> no, it was a really good, really insightful one. I noticed like the, the conversation about Section 28. Um, I then introduced a, a friend who was who didn't really understand what Section 28 was. And I said, oh, there was this thing that basically meant it was illegal for teachers to even tell kids it was okay to be gay. And they were, I think they're 19. So this was quite a shock to them because they, they didn't live during the period that you know, was covered by Section 28. And that was a very interesting conversation. Alex, is that story just you showing off that you and your friends are young and trendy? Yes, pretty much. I I am also young and trendy, not just my friends, thanks. I said you and your friends. Pay attention, (laughs) Alex, at the back of the class class. over there. (laughs) Stop passing notes. What about you, Shivani? Did you learn much? I had like almost the complete opposite thing where I was chatting to one of my friends who grew up and was at school during Section 28. Tell me what that was like for him and and coming out to his family and his family's responses and and all of those things and it was a really interesting really emotional discussion and I was like felt so honored that he'd been so open and honest with me Mm. about it of course so last week we looked at the devastating effects of section 28 which is a piece of legislation effectively banning any discussion of being queer in schools And this week, we're going to be looking forward to how LGBTQ plus education has changed since Section 28 was repealed and some of the areas where change is still needed. Now, last week, we heard from author Jodie Lancet Grant about her experiences of growing up under the legislation. But here we can have a listen to her again, this time talking about the school which her children now attend. I did go to the the school that my daughters go to for a workshop because they invited all parents to come on a workshop where they could explain what this curriculum was going to be. And I think that's for exactly the reasons that Paul says, because there is understanding. And also because parents do have the option to pull their children out of those lessons. And the school very much wants to discourage them from doing that because, as the teacher said in the session, the children are going to talk about it. Surely you would rather your child hears about it from a professional than from a five-year-old who has heard it in the classroom and maybe not understood it because it's part of a process of lessons. And I went along to that workshop, which was uh, optional, because I wanted to be sure that the way they were talking about families was inclusive, which it absolutely was. But there was a loud minority of parents in that workshop who did object to it and who did say, why are we teaching our children this this is very confusing for my child they always say confusing I know I have to say I said well maybe it's your job to uh, explain it to them and if you're not up to that maybe you need to ask somebody else to do it but it was a minority but it was a vocal minority Um, and I really think that they I don't know this but I strongly suspect 
that they didn't know or wouldn't have thought that actually there were children at the school that have two mums or have two dads. And so a lot of what they were saying is, why is this relevant to children? They're six. They're not thinking about their sexuality yet. I mean, that's another conversation. But um, they thought it wasn't relevant then. And then when myself and another couple of uh, mums spoke up and said, well, actually, there are children in your child's class that have got two mums and two dads I think they were a bit surprised I think they thought oh this is something that happens in TV this is something that happens in America this isn't something that happens in Waldenstow where we live um, It's and, terrible isn't it because yeah. once again what you've got is an example of the oppressed having to teach the oppressor Yeah exactly and they felt I think that they were being oppressed because they felt like some of their cultural values were being stamped on so it is a really thorny thorny issue but I think that our school's been really really wonderful and we feel very supportive about it it's always the vocal minority it's always the vocal minority in these things we're seeing that now when it's trans rights on social media we're seeing that you know historically through section 28 it was a vocal minority who who were really opposed to teaching about LGBTQ plus families as a quote-unquote acceptable family lifestyle or whatever horrible words they decided to use in that archaic piece of law. But it's always a vocal minority when it comes to these things. And it's the vocal minority that have gone, you know what, my my right to be offended by this is actually more important than the rights of those kids who are growing up who, no matter whether your rights are, are, are like affected by this, there are going to be queer kids in your classroom who would just kind of like it to be, feel normal, to have their, you know, their existence recognised earlier on in their lives, rather than just, oh, we're not going to acknowledge that they exist because it might be confusing and we don't want to damage our rights to be offended by it. Yeah. For sure. I think as well it says something about the majority of people, right? If it's such a vocal minority, why is the majority not being more vocal? And I think that sometimes there are people who are allies perhaps who don't know or don't feel like it's their place to say something and that is so important you know the one thing that we keep going on and on and on about well it's not just one thing on this podcast but (laughs) one thing that we do talk about often is the fact that allyship is so important and to be able to be a vocal ally is so so important you know we've got that overhang of 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 section 28 really in the classroom but it's a really positive, you know, I'm, I'm refreshed actually by the way that this school appear to be handling it. You know, I would just have absolutely loved growing up as a kid to have been told a little bit earlier on than I was, oh, by the way, it's all right, it's normal to be gay. And so having, you know, schools early on approaching inclusivity with a really, really like sensible approach and also, you know, giving giving the parents that aren't quite that inclusive the opportunity of opting out. It's it's a positive to see in that school, but it's really disappointing to to kind of see the over overlasting picture that we still sort of have that seeping of Section Twenty Eight, even though it finished in two thousand and three. We have that seeping into today's day and age. Yeah, I think what you touched on there as well is so important that sometimes people who are in the majority might not be silent; they might not. No, it's it's not necessarily intolerance from some people. Sometimes it's ignorance because they weren't taught this at school. And there's a power in educating yourself about this because there is, without a doubt, I don't think many people in the UK are going to manage to go through their whole lives without meeting somebody who is LGBTQ+. One of those 
in the LGBTQ plus umbrella. And it's so important to just understand other people's life and to, mm. to, to try and, you know, get them on a different level. And so if it wasn't taught during school during, because of Section 28, then maybe now's the time to go out, go out and learn. And I guess like listening to this podcast is one way you're to go about job. doing that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're doing all right. Um, but I think like, let's focus on the positive in that clip. Jodie was straight in there with the facts. She was there, oh, yes. like, fully representing. So much time for her. And when you're in that environment where everybody around you is sort of seeming to be quite, oh, but what does this matter? Nobody's going to be affected by this. Like, this doesn't apply to anybody we know. For her to then say, put her hand up sort of alone and sort of say, actually, this is kind of me. It's so powerful and so brave for her to sort of do that because... I can imagine that while parents of school-aged children are adults, it it can probably be a bit schooly in the way that the classroom politics work and a bit cliquey. Nothing terrifies me more than school. So I think if there are any of those dynamics being played out, to be able to be the one who goes against the current is so brave. But, you know, Jodie's doing this where she is in in the school that her kids are going to but there are still so many attitudes which need to be changed and challenged but luckily another person who is doing that is another voice we heard from just last week teacher ellie barnes who also runs the charity educate and celebrate have a listen to ellie chatting to emma goswell about coming out to her pupils so what sort of reaction did you get from the kids then when you finally were sort of coming out would they ask you would there be like very open conversations in in the classroom yeah, absolutely. And I loved it um, because it's just about creating that forum, isn't it, for young people and teachers and parents, of course, to have conversations because there's still a lot of fear ar- around this, you know, um, particularly about safe spaces for young people. You know, and what I did is I had my choir at school and I think inadvertently the choir became a kind of a pride group. <laughs> <laughs> it's the LGBT group. Oh, no, sorry, it's the choir. <laughs> yeah, because it just became the safe space for the young people to come to. Mm. And I learned a lot from that, um, that there probably wasn't that many open conversations going on around the rest of the school and the rest of school life. And, uh, you know, that was my reasons for beginning the work at my school, because lots of kids wanted to come out. But even at their young age, you know, if it's legal, it's in the law, it's absolutely fine. But the young people were still very fearful of doing that you know the fear of bullying from other young people the fear of parents the fear of just you know um what people will think of them within the school environment and that's just that this is really not fair because I'm an out teacher and I need to be having these conversations so Mm. creating that space and that forum and that open environment is absolutely key and I'd recommend that to any teachers out there listening today to create that space Shivani, I have a game for us. That's always, it's always quite dangerous when I say that. I have a game. Raise your hand mm. <laughs> if you've ever wanted to or were in the choir. Were you in a choir? No, I really, what was, I really wanted to be in some sort of musical ensemble. I just don't have any singing capabilities at all which is which is quite important joining a choir do you know what yeah it reminds me i I think it's um i think being in the choir was probably the best way i was actually able to solidify coming out it's like oh i used to sing really high pitched yeah basically said it all i was in the choir 
you know what that means. It's a little is bit like Glee, isn't it? In the choir. Yeah, Glee being the way of working out where your nearest queer is. Being like, is there a Glee club nearby? Ah, brilliant. But um, yeah, pretty impressive story from Ellie. Yeah, I mean, I was sat there listening. She came out to her students and I was thinking, like a group <laughs> of children to me is terrifying. And to come out to a, to a group of them in one go, oh, it, it's terrifying to me. Happy to talk about being queer on the radio all day, every day, but whew, in real life, in front of children? I don't know. don't know. The They're one. very scary. No, not the one. You know, Ellie is such a great example of that teacher that every queer kid wishes they had. I know I wish I had one of them. It's positive role models like her that make all of the difference. And it's not just coming out to her students that makes Ellie so brilliant. She also now runs the charity Educate and Celebrate, which helps to provide LGBTQ plus inclusion training in schools. And another charity which is working to empower young people and improve the quality of LGBTQ plus focused education which they receive is Just Like Us. And I'm delighted to say that the CEO of Just Like Us, Dominic Ardle, is on the line to have a chat with us. Um, firstly, like, thanks so much for making the time to chat to us, Dominic. So, like, I know a little bit of the work that Just Like Us do, and it's a, it's a relatively new charity, if I'm not mistaken. Could you tell us a little bit more about the work that Just Like Us do? Well, Just Like Us started in 2016, so we're, we're really pretty new. And I think basically when we were formed, we were formed with the idea that despite the huge steps forward that some aspects, some parts of the LGBT plus communities have made over the last 30 years, you know, you, you think marriage and adoption and serving in the armed forces and all that stuff. And a lot of that really relates to ad- adults. And the picture for young people um, in some schools has got a lot, a lot better. Uh, and in others, I would say it hasn't got better at all. And, and that's always quite a difficult thing for people to hear. A lot of LGBT plus adults will say to me, well, you know, when I was at school, it was section 28. We didn't hear anything about LGBT inclusion. And I always say, actually, that's not an uncommon experience today. So a third of our young people, according to our research, will say uh, that their school never gives positive messages about LGBT inclusion. And in those same schools, uh, anxiety rates for LGBT plus young people, rates of depression, uh, and unfortunately rates of suicide or attempted suicide are higher. So we really have an excellent mandate for this work. Uh, It's work that uh, the government has decided that schools should be doing. Um, And we make it our our job as an LGBT plus education charity to give schools absolutely everything they need uh, in order to do it. That's... um... That one third stat is incredibly shocking, but also not surprising. But there's another shocking stat on your website uh, that 85% of young LGBTQ plus people will regularly hear homophobic remarks. And now a bit earlier on in this episode, we spoke about the vocal minority problem. Do you think that's kind of still the case or is it a bit more of a widespread problem? I I think it's a completely widespread problem. And I think it's almost so widespread that we've stopped caring about it properly. Like I think there's um, like sometimes when I'm talking to people, they'll say, well, you know, I'll talk about the fact that LGBT plus young people are are much more likely to be bullied. And you kind of get this nod like, "Mm, yeah, that's that's about what I'd expect. And, and I think that there's a real danger in that, actually. What we're saying is that it, it's kind of natural and normal for LGBT plus young people to be to be bullied, to hear homophobic language, um, 
to, uh, to, you know, to have their identity questioned. All these things we sort of consider a rite of passage for LGBT plus young people. And that's obviously so wrong and it's so damaging. Um, so I think we need to almost hit the reset button and say, well, look, what is acceptable? Of course, someone should be able to get through their day without hearing homophobic language. Uh, of course, someone shouldn't be bullied at school. Uh, and really that's gotta be the baseline, not where we are at the moment, because unfortunately things are still pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, you touched on the fact that lots of adults that you speak to went to school during Section 28, and we've been speaking about Section 28 this week and last week and some of the devastating effects that it had. Do you think there's there's still a bit of a hangover from Section 28 on education today? Yeah, absolutely. So Stonewall did a piece of research that showed that a third of teachers didn't know if it was okay to talk about LGBT inclusion or not. I think there are teachers, teaching is a vocation unlike, for example, what I do, you know, in the charity sector, you stay in the same job a few years. There are lots of teachers in lots of schools that were teaching during Section 28 and and are teaching now, and their knowledge for LGBT people has not dramatically increased as a result of, um, as a result of the abolition of Section 28. Um, So absolutely, Section 28 is still in, I would say, most schools to an extent in that if teachers have gone from being banned from talking about LGBT people to not knowing whether or not they should talk about LGBT people, the the impact, which is that they're not talking about LGBT people, it's not really materially different. I was just going to say that's shocking that people don't know what they are and aren't allowed to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So Stonewall did a piece of research that showed that a third of teachers didn't know if it was okay to talk about LGBT inclusion or not. I think there are teachers, teaching is a vocation unlike, for example, what I do, you know, in the charity sector, you stay in the same job a few years. There are lots of teachers in lots of schools that were teaching during Section 28 and and are teaching now, and their knowledge for LGBT people has not dramatically increased as a result of, um, as a result of the abolition of Section 28. Um, So absolutely, Section 28 is still in, I would say, most schools to an extent in that if teachers have gone from being banned from talking about LGBT people to not knowing whether or not they should talk about LGBT people, the the impact, which is that they're not talking about LGBT people, it's not really materially different. There is um, a sort of lasting culture of fear, but I'd be interested to know from you on on a personal experience, what was your own experience of school like? And do you feel it was, well, was it influenced by section 28 i can guess the answer to the latter question but it'd be really good to know your experience so i I was at school during section 28 and and it's really interesting because people will say you know were you were you homophobically bullied at school and i always say yeah everyone was it was so absolutely pervasive i i don't believe that the bullies i'm not sure i don't know if they read me as bisexual I, i i think that that probably actually isn't the case i think that um was i homophobically bullied absolutely and everyone that was bullied was bullied for being gay, if that makes sense, whether or not they were gay. Um, I think that there was a kind of macho culture that goes beyond just homophobia. I think it extends into sexism that was certainly absolutely rife in my school. Um, And um, I think it was, there was a teacher, I remember there was a teacher that was a lesbian and we didn't really, I, I say she was a lesbian, we, we didn't ever talk about it, um, but we knew that if we got in trouble, she was the person that we went to speak to, which I, I think is really interesting because there was a sort of unspokenness about it. And now, of course, I know why it's unspoken. I mean, 
one of the really interesting things about Section 28 is if you forbid someone from talking about something, then it sort of hides itself, right? Because you can't even talk about the law, really. You can't talk about the fact that you can't talk about something. Um, so we, did, of course, didn't know any different throughout the, the entirety of my education. I had absolutely no idea. Um, I left school in... Ooh, 1997, slightly aging myself there. Um, so Section 28 was 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 running for the entirety of my my school experience, um, and I did I didn't I hadn't heard of it. So I heard of Section 28 I think in about 2005, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's shocking um, that that you wouldn't have even known what it was that you weren't allowed to talk about. Really, yeah. it's. <laughs> A it's friend of mine a... went to a school where, they, where, uh, where the teacher wore a badge saying scrap section 28 and apparently someone said what's section 28 and he said I can't tell you and that's the point which I, I think really speaks to the culture in schools that you couldn't teachers were really worried about losing their jobs really worried if they even mentioned anything and and that of course extends to LGBT teachers. Yeah, of course. So did did your experiences then motivate you to to want to work in this sector and to work on on things like LGBTQ plus education in schools? Do you know, I, I think I think it obviously did, but not in a very conscious way. So I, I have not thought and I think my my sexual orientation, partly because I'm bisexual, took me a very long time to sort of get the nuts and bolts of it together. And I was always thinking like, this is oh, this is a bit of a secret thing. Oh, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? You know, it, it, that formed the basis of my sexual orientation for a really long time, and I think that I think that it could have been a lot, lot easier. And I certainly could have been saved an, a, a lot of a lot of problems, a lot of interpersonal problems, a lot of interfamily problems, uh, had I been able to piece that together a lot quicker. Um, so it, it's undeniably had an impact on who I am and my life and my want to work in the sector. And I think everybody, one of the things I love about working in LGBT education is that no one's like punching the clock. Absolutely everyone in the office, you know, loves being there, is super engaged with their work. People wanting to do their jobs and work hard just isn't a problem in our sector because everyone's kind of got skin in the game. We're, and, and I think all of us probably to some extent are remembering that person at school. And speaking about that person at school and that past experience, um, bringing it to today, I read about the School Diversity Week, and that's one of the most influential campaigns that Just Like Us does. Uh, the stat is over 2 million students were involved in 2020. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So <clears throat> School Diversity Week was was born of the fact that a lot of schools were feeding back to us that Pride felt like a difficult thing for them to engage with. And they were saying, well, Pride's kind of an adult event. And, and also Pride was sort of associated with marches and, and stuff like that. And what we wanted to do is come up with an event that schools were able to celebrate <clears throat> that was really easy, basically, um, <clears throat> because we knew that a lot of teachers were saying, we don't really know how to do this. And I guess if you're straight, you don't have LGBT plus friends or anything, I can see how that would feel like a difficult thing to deliver. Um, so we wanted to come up with an event that gave schools absolutely everything they needed, basically. So posters, campaigns, um, activities for the students to be involved in. Um, we now have lessons at every single key stage in every single subject. So whatever kind of teacher you are, you can engage with a lesson and deliver an LGBT inclusive lesson to your young people. Um, and, and that was kind of the birth of it, really. And it started with about uh, schools representing 40,000 young people. And as you say, we're now up to 2.4 million uh, 
hoping for 3.2 this year. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> so let's help you get to that target of 3.4 million because you just like us do so many things. There's the ambassador program. There's the pride groups program. There are loads of things to do. How can people get involved and how can people learn a little bit more about what just like us do and, and get involved if they want to? I think, you know, the first thing to say is that I think people feel a bit powerless with this, like they don't like they don't particularly straight people sometimes feel like this isn't their fight or they don't <laughs> they don't quite know how to engage. And I'd say that really um, we need straight parents on side with this. Uh, we need parents to be thinking when their kid is four, what's the LGBT policy like in this school? And I know that sounds unusual, but actually that decision and the decision to ask that question could radically alter uh, have a huge impact on, on your child's life. Um, so I'd, I'd say to all parents, please, please, please ask the schools what they're doing to support LGBT plus young people. And if they look uncomfortable, um, that's probably a sign that they're not doing very much. Uh, so I'd say, please send them to us. If you're listening and you're part of a school, if you're a teacher, um, School Diversity Week is completely free. We made it this way because we want to remove barriers and make it as easy as possible to get involved. Um, we will give you everything you need. You can get involved in some bits and not others. It's not prescriptive. Uh, we want to, to do the best to make this easy for you. And if you see something that makes it hard for you, please contact me and tell me about it so we can make sure that we take it away. So the best way of contacting us, I'd say, is if you come over to our website at www.justlikeus.org, uh, you'll be able to see everything we have on offer. Thank you so much, Dominic, for taking the time to speak to us. And of course, everyone at Just Like Us for the incredible work that they're doing. And if you want more information on Just Like Us and even how you can become an ambassador yourself, we'll put everything you need to know in the show description. Now, in a minute, we're going to be moving away from the classroom to explore another side of education, namely whether LGBTQ plus people have the responsibility to educate those outside of the community on LGBTQ plus issues. We'll be attempting to answer this question with the help of TikTok inclusivity educator Benji Cousy straight after your Virgin Radio Pride weekly update with Daryl. Thank you. Hello. First this week... An investigation has found the dating app Tinder is charging young gay people and the over 30s up to 48% more than other users on its site, which asked 200 mystery shoppers to create real profiles and make a note of prices quoted for the app's premium package Tinder Plus. Lisa Webb is a lawyer for the consumer group and says she's reported their findings to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. They have received it. They've said that the research does look pretty concerning and that they're going to look into it. Basically, there's a chance that this kind of behaviour from Tinder is unlawful discrimination under UK equality law. Now, veterans who were expelled from the military because of their sexuality or forced to lead double lives have welcomed a review into their treatment. However, they say the fact it's taken 22 years is a national disgrace. The Cabinet Office has launched an independent review which will hear the stories of military personnel who were stripped of their armed forces jobs and medals under homophobic laws that were in place until January 2000. Bake Off star John Waite has said the love he and his dancing partner received during Strictly Come Dancing outweighed any trolling. He and the professional dancer became the first all-male pairing on the BBC One show last year. The couple made the final but lost out to deaf soap star Rose Ailing Ellis and her professional partner. 
And Madonna says she's in talks with Kanye West's new girlfriend about her upcoming movie. The 63-year-old shared several pictures on social media of Julia Fox and the US rapper. The pop star wrote she went out to dinner with Julia only to be surprised by some other folks showing up for their rendezvous. That's all for this week. I'll be back next week. Thanks, Daryl. Now, if you've been on TikTok recently, you'll more than likely have seen a friendly face pop up on your For You page. No, not me. Well, maybe me. But more likely, it's a wonderful person uttering the now infamous words, Hi, Benji here, before delivering a punchy and informative educational video. We are, of course, talking about inclusivity educator Benji Cousy, who rose to fame on the platform for his videos, many of which aim to educate viewers on LGBTQ plus issues. But do we as a community have a responsibility to educate people outside of the community on these issues? Have a listen to what Benji himself had to say when he chatted to Matt Cain on his Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. I know that a lot of our community um, do get asked a lot to educate others. Um, And a lot of the time, the questions that are being asked are simple things, just in terms of, you know, why you should use pronouns or why you shouldn't say or do certain things. And the thing is, it can be very draining for people in our community to be constantly on this pedestal doing lectures to people when you just want to, you know, have a drink at a bar or you're just having a walk in the park. And the point of that video was basically to tell people that I am a member of 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 a certain community and on this page, I educate because I want to, right? But you shouldn't assume that everyone you meet who is like me has a duty to educate you. Um, completely. Um, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you've got your videos as a resource, mm-hmm. but then, actually, if we do take those opportunities to educate in real life, they can sometimes have a really big impact. Even though I totally take what you're saying about it can be draining to have to do it all the time and it can be emotionally triggering, mm-hmm. it can be very effective, little activism, moments of activism and educating people in, you know, in amongst everyday life but the thing is that there are people who are doing that you know actively doing that if, because they want to like like me i i do it on tiktok so i my like my sister and my friends always say that my pages are helpful because instead of explaining something they'll be like oh i'll watch this video send you a link and, and educate yourself and so i think yes it can be really impactful if we all did a little bit of activism but I think the onus should be on others to do the work themselves and and educate themselves. We don't all have to be activists. I really like this approach of self-service education. You know, instead of having to... (laughs) I I can think of all the different ways that some people have tried to get advice from me. There's been some horrific stories. But instead of, like, downloading Grindr and trying to find the nearest queer to ask some questions, you know, tell me about how this works. We're not your walking encyclopedia. Google is free. You can find this stuff out yourself. For sure. And I think like there's a difference, right, between people like you and me who are making a podcast or other people out there who like Benji, who's making informative content to help educate people and making that space and that time online to talk about things that they're comfortable to talk about and sharing things that they're comfortable to share on your own terms, in your own time 
it's it's something that can feel quite empowering and quite productive rather than having someone intrude on your space like grinder may not be a space where you want to be educating you may <laughs> be there for some sort of other educating friendships and it's i'm, I'm there i'm, I'm I, I used to use grinder for friendships thank you very for much. friendships right and and you're sort of backed into a corner or forced into a situation when somebody asks you a question it might be a really valid question but you just might not want to answer it there and then in that way like people contact me to ask them to teach them things about pronouns and and non-binary pronouns and things like that and I talk about those things lord knows I do but I don't want to do that in my spare time. Like there are things here. And I think Benji's tip of sending a resource of being like, oh, actually I discussed this here might, might be the way I should start going about doing things. Definitely. And you, that, that point that you made about space, you know, actually having the space to, <laughs> I, I want to actually be gay as opposed to have to tell people about being gay, you know, celebrate my queer identity as opposed to having to constantly explain it to other people. Um, and that one thing that you said about space hit a nerve on me. And it's this person meant absolutely no harm. They're one of my best mates. And he, he's fully aware that I was going to talk about this. I went on a night out with him and I took him to one of my queer spaces, of which there are ample in London, so I won't name check any. Um, and he Name check absolutely... all of them. Go on, Alex. Name check all of them. No, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just read out my Monzo. Uh, that's, <laughs> probably gonna, that's probably the best way of working out where I've been. But this friend absolutely meant no harm. And let me make that really, really clear. But it miffed me off slightly where I'm in a queer space with him, having a great time. He's had a few drinks. And then he was asking a lot of questions and just kind of like, well, explain pronouns. And I was like... I'm not, you're walking encyclopedia. I'm not a self-service encyclopedia that, that provides answers on queer identity on demand. I probably don't even have the answers myself. It's for you to find those things out. And we had a talk about it and he very much uh, kind of appreciated where I was coming from. There was nothing to apologize over. It wasn't that sort of thing, but it was a really insightful experience as to just how miffed off I can get by having all of those questions asked. What's the worst kind of like example you can think of, of a time when you're just getting questions and you just do not want the questions? I think, I think people DM me and and it goes into the request folder, which means that they're not necessarily people I follow or whatever, but people, People DM me and they ask me all sorts of questions about identity and sexuality and sometimes even sex itself, which is uh, exhausting. Um, it's so tiring. And those are questions that are probably all answered somewhere on the internet. If not by me, then I'm sure by somebody with more experience or knowledge on the topic than me. And it's it's one of those things that People, people who send those messages then sometimes occasionally feel like you owe them. Like mm -hmm. they've taken the time to message you and they feel like they deserve a response. And so the worst case was when someone sort of continued to message me and would sort of, it was a series of messages. I think I was probably on a night out and um, hadn't responded to any of them. And they were sort of just... It was a bit harassy, to be honest, and I just ended up blocking them. And I think that's a real shame because, you know, they may have had some valid questions and it may have come from a place of of 
ignorance rather than wanting to be intolerant and come across as they were harassing me. But it it left a really bad feeling with me, a bad bad vibes all around. Bad no one likes vibes. bad vibes. No, not at all. But now I'm just going to be like, check out Benji's TikTok because he is an absolute legend. And if you're asking me these questions, you obviously aren't familiar with his work where he can be found on TikTok at Benji underscore lookbook. That is just about all we've got time for today. But before we go, let's hear from someone who's devoted most of his life to activism and educating others, the legendary Peter Tatchell. In this clip, Peter talks about the connection between direct action and education. Here, have a listen. All the direct action protests I've been involved in have not merely sought to challenge people abusing our community, but also to educate people. You know, we have used direct action as a way of getting news coverage. And through that news coverage, raising public awareness about the scale of homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic discrimination. And then off the back of that, many of us have done radio phone-in programs, TV debates, where we've had a chance to explain why LGBT plus rights is consistent with human rights and why governments, police, and churches should change. So off the back of the direct action, there has been an education process, and it's been very, very, very effective. We know from the research and polls that have been taken that in the wake of many of the protests that I and others have done, public attitudes have begun to shift in favour of LGBT plus rights. I think it's quite funny to think about how far we've come. Like, it's a really weird imbalance that Peter's highlighting there where there was a point in time where you would have to do something quite dramatic in order to get attention so people would be able to talk about LGBTQ plus issues. Whereas now, we've kind of just finished talking about how we occasionally get get asked questions in inappropriate places at inappropriate times because people want this information on demand. It's oh, a bit how of a... the tables have turned. <laughs> the, the script has been flipped, Alex. <laughs> it's really, really interesting. But, you know, thinking back to the time that Peter described, a time where direct action was needed for you to be able to say, LGBT plus people deserve rights. And now, look at this. We're, we're having to fob people off because they're asking so many questions. It's a complete, complete change. Um, but look at how we've moved on, eh? And I think, you know, it goes without saying, but a huge credit to those people who did put in all of that work before us to get us to the place where people now sort of want us to be encyclopedias on demand when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights and issues and everything. Um because if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be in this position where we are today. Of course. And it's a huge step forward. But um, but there's still some more work to be done. Absolutely. However, can you hear that sound? The bell has rung and that means that is all we've got time for this week. But fear not, because we'll be back next week where we're going to be delving into the world of LGBTQ plus representation in music. Do I finally have an excuse to get my DJ decks out? No. Also, can we please make sure none of us bring out our Spotify wrapped? I'm sorry, Kim Petrus. I just like listening to your music. Okay, next question. Does this mean I'm finally allowed to sing on the podcast? Um, that has always been a no, and... 
but it's yeah. it's music it's music not to anyone's ears but it's still music <laughs> until then though we'd love to hear from you if you've got anything to say about anything we discussed this week you can email us using pridecast at virginradio.co.uk or you can find us on twitter at virginradiouk remembering to use hashtag virginradiopridecast that's all from us see you next week <laughs>